test drive, test drive. You're my test drive. If you're watching this on YouTube, you know exactly what I'm like laughing and smiling about. There's more and more things every time in the background. Yes, I have introduced a disco ball, as you can see. <laughs> and I'm trying to maneuver it so that it covers like my whole background and puts you into this like spacey slow-mo mood. And I don't think I'm doing it, but I love it. I'm not sure that's what's happening in your head. <laughs> and I'm not sure it's true crime content appropriate. That kind of fits the whole vibe of the show, right? I mean, nothing I've ever said here was ever appropriate. And if you're looking at it, you're wondering, why didn't you get a bigger ball? Listen, ladies and gentlemen, I don't understand dimensions. I still have the smallest, like, plastic chest of drawers in my room where I keep stuff like rubber bands or, like, nail polish that I have ordered years ago, thinking it's gonna be one of those big ones where I can, like, store shoes and stuff, and then it got delivered. I was like, I just... <laughs> don't understand orientation in life and don't understand dimensions and I accept it. We all accept it. You just got to accept that you will not be able to do certain things in your life, like ever. You know, some people, great at math, can't orientate. Me, suck at both of those things. <laughs> not a great example, my what are you great at? Let's do it. Podcasting. Wow. <laughs> you tried. <laughs> you tried, bitch. <laughs> great at telling a story, not great at anything else. Well, I tried. So, uh, but this is already gonna be the longest episode, so let's just, like, dive into, you know, the expression, and then followed by the case of the day. You didn't do the introduction, do the CD scratch. You won't, you won't be able to. You can't, don't for shit. Welcome to March. This is by all means necessary. My name is Maya. I'm your host. I'm your solo host of this podcast. This is a true crime comedy podcast. It's a weird concept, I know. And March is for massacres, so... We went for filicides, and you were like, wow, is this letter thing gonna go on forever? No, it's not. But I plan to do this for, for months. Like, in my head, for months, I was like, oh, massacres are for March. I, I don't understand it either. But I wanted to research a couple of them that are not covered prevalently, and this one in particular, it amazes me how few podcasters, YouTube channels have ever covered it. And when I first heard it, like, months ago, might be even a year ago, on Eleanor Neal channel, you know, Eleanor Neal, the British true crime queen, it was so vivid, because if you know anything about me, you know that my imagination is wild. Like, it's gross, but it's also wild. And it just stuck with me forever, so that's why I was like, okay, mm -hmm, no, 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 when we get to March, I'm gonna do massacres and start with this one. So let's see if I can paint a picture for you the way Eleanor did it for me. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, let's dive in. Let's get to the expression of the day. I just had a pee break and as I was washing my hands, I looked at my teeth and I swear I have a tooth gap in the between the middle teeth again, which I did not have this morning. I think I'm losing my fucking shit in this quarantine. I'm recording in February, so Bojo still didn't make the statement. I have no idea what's happening at the moment that this episode is being released, okay? Is this gonna age well, or is it not? The expression of the day, because if you noticed, if you noticed, if you're catching my drift for the past couple of episodes, I am, um, kind of teaming them with the rest of it. So, you know, usually the expression at the beginning of the episode sometimes gives you a clue of what this episode is going to be about. And today's expression is another old one. It is the expression of being a judge, jury, and executioner. So the meaning of it is, if you're calling somebody the judge, jury, and the executioner, it means you're saying they're in charge of every single decision they're making. They're, you know, a control freak. They're like a powerful person. <laughs> 
the origin of it was a bit hard to find. Well, actually, it was really easy to find. <laughs> but um, the origins of some of these old expressions, please, in the comments on YouTube, submit. Submit. <laughs> this is very important. <laughs> submit uh, what other expressions they want me to cover. Because some of these old expressions, and when I say some, I mean all of them, are attributed to Shakespeare. And I just can't accept that. I'm, I'm sorry. Shakespeare did not invent everything in the English language. You will disagree, linguists, I know. But no. So, the earliest use, uh, they suspect, the sources that I have consulted suspect, have been attributed to Shakespeare or to Greek tragedies. I'm all for the Greeks. Balkans, we do it. This is how we do it. But unlike many of these expressions that have been contributed to Shakespeare, here you couldn't find a quote. Where exactly from? Which work? So, People have given other works that have maybe come a bit later, like in 1700s and 1800s, but that are, you know, available online. So these are some of the early mentions of the judge, jury, and the executioner. The earliest one is Daniel Defoe's Memoirs of the Church of Scotland. This is from 1717. However, this line is actually used in court documents, and the earliest one there is from the Judicial Court of Massachusetts in 1858. So, in the case of Brown versus Perkins, the court said, and this is the longest line, so bear with me, if we go farther than this and say that any person may go beyond what the law authorizes him to do, and himself execute the law, then we are under a government of men and not of laws, and the legislative, instead of entrusting the execution of the laws to the executive and judicial departments, makes every individual to be judge, jury, and executioner in his own case. You know, in my customer service job, they taught me like a sentence shouldn't have more than seven words. <laughs> I did not learn it in school. I did not learn it at like uni. No, it was at like one of my jobs. They were like, yeah, keep it short and sweet. Paragraph less than four lines. <laughs> These guys did not get that memo. Whichever origin story you believe in, whether you believe it's Shakespeare, whether you believe it's Defoe, whether you believe it was first mentioned in some court document because that would be appropriate, the protagonist of today's story will be JJE, as I shorten it here. Because when the sun shines, we shine together. You know, it will be a great day. Today would be a great day for Rihanna to start releasing new music. And yesterday was a great day. And tomorrow will again be a great day for Rihanna to start releasing new music. Because just telling you the full expression would waste so much precious time. You, you okay? You okay? Can, can we move past this? Because when the sun shines, shine Cool. Yeah, we're moving past this. Can never segue perfectly. Never. We're diving into the case of Hungerford Massacre. Heard about it? Well, if you Google Hungerford, for some reason, maybe you're planning to move there, you might find out that the population of it is less than 6k. They are surrounded by woodlands. They are near the River Dun. And they're a market town in Berkshire, so southeast England. So if you're going London towards Reading or Bristol, that's sort of where it is, if you're like visual human like me. However, also, if you Google it without any additional words, this massacre is going to pop up. Because unfortunately, one man's decisions have changed this city's history forever. On 19th of August 1987, Michael Ryan woke up and decided to terrorize the city of Hungerford for one and a half hours. By the end of it, 16 people will end up killed and 15 injured. 
what were his motives. the whitest dance that has ever been danced. <laughs> it wasn't even like the hands up in the air, it was just like this move. Just to get you into the scene, it's 19th of August 1987, so even though this is UK, it's pretty warmish. Ryan wakes up and he's unemployed. So he's 27 at this time, he's unemployed and it's already midday. So just after midday, he decides to get out of the house. And you're like, where, where are you going, Michael? Where, where the fuck are you going? Stop what you're doing. Stop what you're doing. He's leaving house wearing all black. You're like, are you a member of a metal band in the 90s? Like, go back. Go. It's a sunny day. Why, why are you going out in all black? It's just not how the universe intended it to be. But unfortunately, he does. He doesn't have the time machine to listen to my advice and probably wouldn't as well because he's a piece of shit. So he goes out carrying a pistol. Not gonna end up good. But at this point, he is just out dressed in all black carrying a 9mm pistol. And he walks from his house and goes into this secluded area. He's just walking by, passing the Severnake Forest. And because he's a complete fucking creep, he's spying on this family in the forest from the bushes. He was spying on Susan, who was 33, and her children, Hannah, who was four, and James, who was two. So he was literally just watching them play, watching them have their lunch. And then he decided to act. The mom was packing up while the kids were still playing around. When Michael approaches them and he's dead serious, he tells her to put the children in the car. And she's just like, well, he's approaching me, pointing this gun at me. I gotta put the kids in, strap them in. And she strapped them in and told them to wait for her and said she will be back soon. After she does this, he walks her into the woods and this is where he shot her 13 times and then return to the parking area. Luckily, because this is the information that I needed, he didn't harm the kids. He went into his own car. So the kids are just literally in the car watching him come out of the forest, but not their mom. And he goes into his car and just drives away. Now, after he drove away and the kids figured out that he's not coming back, Hannah unbuckled them from the seatbelts and basically took her younger brother and started looking in the forest for their mother. Sort of luckily for them, they encountered this other park visitor whose name was Myra Rose and another police officer that kind of noticed this commotion while patrolling and all of them went to investigate. I say luckily because I hope in my head that those two grown-ups have actually found the victim rather than the kids seeing their mother dead. But they will not connect this for a while to Ryan. It will actually be five victims that he shot at random, three of them actually around his house, until the police clocks that this is all one person that they're after. You'll soon realize why, because the second crime happens at a petrol station. So Michael is in a car now, and he is just driving around and goes to Frogsteel Petrol Station, where the wife of the owner, Mrs. Kakub Dean, is just watching him 
fill up his petrol. Like, completely normal. He was actually a regular customer, but he was not chatty and friendly. So she was like, oh, this creep again. Probably just like, yeah, let's just, you know, get through this transaction and move on with my day. However, she's watching him intently because he's doing something that's out of the ordinary. He's filling a lot more petrol than he usually does. And she's kind of like suspicious, like, you know, it's a small city, as I told you, it's like less than 6k people, probably at the time even less. So she knew every single customer that came around, and she was like, okay, this is suspicious, you know, but probably at that time she's thinking maybe he's gonna try to get away with paying for less, or like not paying at all, but that was not it. Once she stops looking while Michael was filling up the tank, obviously another customer walks in, she's inside, starts serving Iron George. Ryan, in the meantime, is in the boot of his car, and he is taking out a semi-automatic rifle. By the time she looks back to check on what he's doing, he's pointing a rifle directly at her and starts shooting. She ducks under the counter, and he just starts shooting. So he shatters the glass. The customer that she was serving, George Skidaddles, he goes out on a motorcycle. He's like, fuck it, save each one to their own. Save ourselves. And Michael starts walking slow-mo like a fucking horror movie character inside and he is not saying anything it's just one of the most terrifying things you can imagine he just looks at her and she is crying she's begging him not to kill her however he pulls the trigger but nothing happens then he pulls it again and again and nothing happens. The rifle just failed to fire three times in a row. Like, I don't know what luck this woman had. I mean, I don't think she's going to hell like most of us, speaking for myself. But I was just like, wow, this is insanity. Also, what is going through your head? Because this is like Russian roulette. Like, how many more times is he going to press the fucking trigger? And because you guessed it, she is lucky and she will survive. Later, she will testify that it just seemed like he had a blank face. Like, he was not even aware of her. He was like, he was looking through her as a person. Luckily, he gives up on trying to shoot her again and he just returns to his car and drives off towards Hungerford. What will become prevalent as a pattern is what happens next. She will obviously call the ambulance. However, at the time, that customer that skedaddled called them even before her. Meaning that the pattern that's going to happen is that these lines are gonna start getting clogged from this point on. At about 12.45, he arrives to Fort Southview, which is a place where he lived with his mother. His mom was not at the house at this point, so he just walks in. But then the neighbors, because it was a sunny day, it's summer, people are outside, they're having barbecues in their yards. People have reported that they have heard something that sounded like muffled shots. And this is gonna trigger many. This will trigger many, because it involves an animal. But later they will find out that he shot a family dog, a black Labrador. Now he changes the outfit. Fuck knows why. Because he probably knows he's on a mission. That's that's what I think happened. So he puts a headband on and a sleeveless jacket because he understands it's weather now. Like, you know, he had to change from all black everything. And he's outside carrying a bag filled with food and other supplies. He tries to turn on the car, but it's failing. So he's like trying again. Like, I just filled my tank. Why is this car not working? Why is it not starting? So as every logical human being, he gets out of the car, takes his rifle and shoots five shots into the boot of the car. 
if he was growing up in the 90s and 2000s, I can tell you this is the guy who would have that anger management issues that would just like try to slam the computer. You know, like the old computers that we had in the dial-up era when there was like a proper hardware in the house of it and then people would just like slam it and be like, yeah, that will help it work. And you're like, no. And it also doesn't help your anger management issues. Like, go get some therapy, mate. After demolishing the trunk of his car, he goes back into the house and then takes 5-liter can of petrol, soaks all around the house and sets it on fire. Now he goes back to his car and in his car he packed up quite a lot of things. Military clothing, a lot and lot of ammunition and a first aid kit, multiple firearms. That Beretta 9mm semi-automatic that he used to shoot his first victim, Kalashnikov. Kalashnikov, Kalashnikov. Not appropriate, will never be. And other items, and he just takes off on foot. Because, ladies and gentlemen, this guy, as I told you, shot 16 people, well, killed 16 people, and shot 15 more. And he will do all of this on foot. Among other reasons, why this is one of the creepiest crimes that I have probably ever covered. Because he just never, never just paces it out, you know? Like, sometimes with normal people, the walk clears your mind that you are, like, a new person. You start off completely, like, after some time, you're distressed, you can breathe again. Not Michael Ryan, nope. He just takes off and just doesn't stop for, like, six hours, for fuck's sake. And also reminds me exactly of, like, every horror movie, every psychological thriller where the bad guy just walks slow-mo, because I can totally imagine how he's just nonchalantly walking while he's not even seeing people as people, he's just seeing through them and just shooting. While walking down his road, he sees two of his neighbors, Roland and Sheila Mason, in their back garden, and he shoots Roland six times and Sheila once in the head. Both of them died on the spot. One other thing that we will pick up as a pattern is that even though he's walking down the street and apparently shooting these neighbors at random, he doesn't care who he shoots, he kind of does. The witnesses have reported that even after this murder, because now the whole street is on high alert, that he's still hushing away the children. The children are playing on the roads, they're playing in the backyards. He's like sort of telling them to get lost, to go inside. And he's only attacking adults. The next lady made my day, because elderly people just win. Listen, you you know my connection with my great-grandma. Like, elderly people are just the best, especially Brits, with, like, their sense of humor. And then, like, they're elderly, and they're like, who the fuck, what is going on? (laughs) You just need to get out of the street and investigate. An elderly neighbor, Dorothy Smith, who was 77 and deaf in one ear, came on the street to see what all the fuss about. And she shouted at him, saying, Is that you making that noise? You're frightening everybody to death. Stop it, you stupid bugger. Somehow, though, he doesn't shoot her. Again, there are some people that just have more luck than the others. He just, again, kind of looks through her and has a strange grin, as she described later, but then just moves towards the east through this footpath that was leading to Hungerford Common. As he's walking by this footpath, he's gonna have multiple victims. He just does not stop, does not care about the location. There's no, like, special locations that signify something to him. There's none of that. So he shoots Lisa Mildenhall, who was 14, and he smiled at her while she was crouching on the ground at her front door, and then shoots her four times in the legs and the stomach. She's trying to, like, scramble, crawl inside the house, and luckily he moves on, 
and her mother calls the ambulance so Lisa will survive the shooting. This is interesting to me because she will be his youngest victim and because as I said like he didn't kill kids well technically she was a child but he used to hush everybody else out of the way and wasn't hurting everybody so I'm not sure exactly why he did try and kill Lisa and also what you will notice is that he shoots to kill like he shoots for the head or like the heart so again this is kind of for me like where I think personally again not professional opinion not a psychologist a psychiatrist here but that he is trying to prove something maybe to himself but can't fully do it so he's not aiming for a kill shot here but he's rather shooting at her leg or at her stomach which he will not repeat with any other grown-up I think that that makes some difference. I don't want to say like it makes it better, but that's one part that's not investigated fully or is not just mentioned because he usually tries to protect the children, whereas here he clearly shot somebody just as he was walking by. And it's not fully investigated why he deviated from like his usual victimology in this case. He goes back to the footpath and continues walking, and he sees Kenneth Clements, who was walking along with his family towards Southview, and he just kind of like turns the corner, sees Kenneth, starts shooting. He shot Kenneth once and killed him instantly, and his son jumped the fence. He legged it. He was like, this is not a joke. This is not to be joked with. He jumps the fence into the neighboring school, and the rest of the family literally just scattered around. They just ran for their fucking lives. Because at this point, police has received multiple calls, they finally figure out it's one person. It's one person that is just walking through the streets and is just killing people. Because we have the petrol station worker, we have that customer, and we have literally all of his neighbors and all of the people that he shot at this point. So they're literally clogging the 999 lines. The police is finally on board and they have issued a helicopter that is circling around the neighborhood trying to spot him. They are trying to do the right thing and are setting the units and they're dispatching police officers to kind of tell people which direction to go, like to divert cars into the opposite direction of where they think he is going by what they're observing by the helicopter. But in the unfortunate turn of events, they're actually going to send some drivers directly at him because nobody knows where he's going. By this footpath, he can turn left, right. Nobody knows which part of the city is he going to next. Because of this turn of events, the police constable, Roger Brereton, rushed to Southview to try to like prevent this because Michael Ryan was headed to that area. But Ryan shot the patrol car 23 times. So, of course, the police constable stood no chance. He was hit by four bullets and he died in his car. Because there are other cars moving, there's a car turning right as he shot this police constable. And in the car are Linda Chapman and her teenage daughter, Allison, who just happened to turn onto Southview moments after this guy was shot. So they had no idea of this commotion. Otherwise, probably wouldn't have turned onto that street. And Ryan fires 11 bullets from his semi-automatic and they travel through the bonnet of the car hitting and wounding Allison in her right thigh. One of these bullets also went through the windscreen and hit Linda into the left shoulder. However, as he needs to reload now because he's just firing monaically, doesn't count how many bullets he has left, doesn't count how many he has fired, 
Linda manages to reverse the fuck out of there, and she exits South View and drives directly to the GP. GP is a doctor for the American listeners, by the way. General practitioner, so like a local doctor. Both of them will live, and the bullet was lodged in the base of Allison's spine. Surgeons decide not to remove it, because the risk of paralysis would be great if they were to remove it, so the bullet is just there in her spine. How scary! This would be so scary to me. Like, I can't even deal with contraception, you know, like one of those patches or just a coil. Like, I just can't deal with the thing in me. I just don't trust it. I'm like, what if I move the wrong way, man? Like, where's this bullet gonna go? Like, I just, what? You have a bullet stuck in you. Like, you're like, how do I do exercise? Like, every movement might mean that something gets dislocated. Like, I would just be paranoid all the fucking time. This is the trust level that I can never reach. And this woman has to because of this fucking maniac. I have read in one of the sources that she was actually disabled because of this. So I'm not sure which one is correct. So I'm sorry if one of her family members ends up listening to this. You can always correct me. I'll do the corrections corner on like the next episode. I've just read like two completely different things in different sources. And both of them are disturbing. Well, one of them is better, isn't it? But then again, the paranoia that comes to it is just the next level. Still walking, he turns to Fairview Road, where Abdul Khan, who was technically one of his neighbors, because he was just a few blocks down from him, who was 84 and was retired, he was just mowing his lawn in the back garden. Ryan approaches him, he looks at him, and then shoots him three times. As soon as he shot him, he just turns his head and sees a man who actually helped install one of those steel cabinets for his firearm collection. This guy's name was Alan Lepetit, and as in so many instances in this particular case, Lepetit heard the shooting as well, and he just ran onto the street to see what's going on, to see if anybody else needs help. But Ryan shot him twice in the arm and once in the back, and then he fled. Abdul Khan will succumb to his injury, and he will die, Ellen will survive the attack. This next one for me, just like the one with the swerving car where the mother tried to save her daughter and then drove to the GP, it's just again one of those wildest things you just think you will see on a movie. You never think this can be real life. Because Ryan, just moving down the street, saw an ambulance and he, logically, of course at this point, shoots at it. Luckily, there were two drivers in the ambulance, so the ambulance woman, Hazel Heslett, she was injured in the arm and the leg by the broken glass. But the driver, Linda Bright, something immediately switches on in her head, and she puts the ambulance in reverse and retreats it. This two will survive because of Linda's acting, but this is when it becomes prevalent everything that's happening. Now he injured people in the ambulance that are trying to go and help others. Also, the fire engine that was called to deal with the fire that he started his own house, remember that? So nothing is working in the favor of the people because Hungerford is a small place. They have like one fire station and this ambulance that has been dispatched, both services are now occupied and are not helping all of the victims that he is lining up. So the fire department dispatched the car, but they are still at his address because that fire has spread to three houses, so they're still occupied there. The residents are getting increasingly worried because the ambulance isn't attending fast enough because they have been shot themselves. And the police are busy trying to get people away from what they call the danger zone. So trying to get them away from where they think he is and basically divert people in all of the other directions. Marjorie Jackson was just walking to 
check on the building because she was a caretaker. And she was walking with her dog, who then started chasing a man in front of her. And she was kind of like, oh, you know, probably brushed it off. Like, yeah, his dog is just dog chasing man. Just dog doing dog things, living in his dog world. And she kind of recognized the man from the back. She knew Ryan. She actually worked with his mom because his mom was a lunch lady at a school and Marjorie was a caretaker. And once she turns the road, because now her dog is out of her sight, she's like trying to get the dog. Well, she sees Ryan pointing a gun at her. She said she just started to run. She legged it. She tried to like avoid the bullets because he's shooting at her, this maniac. And she kind of swerved around and ran back into her house. And he chased her all the way. She slammed the door and she thought he was safe. But then he shot through the window. He got her in her lower back and she felt the impact. Like even though her adrenaline was rushing, she did feel the impact. And she tries to literally crawl down, just avoid the bullets and goes to her phone. And because Marjorie is like the most British person ever, she calls her husband. But she tells him she needs a bit of help at home. But she didn't tell him what happened because she didn't she thought this was random right like none of these people thought like no this is a guy that has already killed like 10 people at this point she didn't know that the ambulances and the fire engines and everybody else is occupied and that she actually needs that emergency really soon or that her calling for help is going to drive her husband into the arms of Michael Ryan, which is exactly what happens. So her husband's Ivor's colleague, George White, he drives Ivor home to check up on his wife to see what actually happened when they come across Ryan in a car. Ryan shoots 11 bullets into the car, shoots Ivor, the husband, three times in the chest and once in the head, and shoots George White as well. Ivor somehow, even after being shot in the chest and in the head, survives the shooting. These are always so interesting to me when somebody survives the bullet to the head. Like, I know my head is huge, but like, where is this lodged? Can I twist my head in all of the, can I crack my neck the way I do, you know, if a bullet is stuck in my head? Or again, is it like with everything else, once it's like stuck in your back, that you are just paranoid at all times? Somebody answer me that, yeah? I really need that question answered, just, just in case, just as a precaution. Because as wild as this is to imagine, this is technically still his neighborhood. It's like a few streets away. He went down the road, went through a footpath, and then turned into a street. This is literally down the road from this guy. His mom comes up on the road. She's returning home from doing shopping, Dorothy Ryan, and she arrives at the scene in her car. She kind of parks behind George White's car and is trying to process what the hell has happened because she sees both of them wounded in the car and then she sees her son. She's trying to attend to Ivor, and then once she processes that her son is the shooter, she asks him to stop, and she asks him, why is he doing this? Without any response, just with a blank expression on his face, Ryan shot his mother twice in the stomach and once in the leg. Then once she's on the ground, he actually walks up to her, with a gun only four inches from her, shoots her in the back, and kills her. Remember the police helicopter? Well, the police is—it's a helicopter, right? It can't just land in the middle of the fucking narrow road in the neighborhood. So they're trying to signal and call out to Ryan to stop, to lay down his weapons. But of course, it's a helicopter. It doesn't give a fuck. So he just continues walking. And at that point, I need to loop you into something else. Why the police or like special task forces that are designed to act in these circumstances? Well, 
the tactical firearms unit actually on that day just the coincidence it's starting to take a toll and starting to piss us all off they had a training in like a separate city so they had to actually drive back for miles so this is why they haven't been deployed yet so only at 1:30 p.m these specially trained officers from the tactical firearms unit were brought in and the local police officers now assembles and tries to figure out the plan of attack. Ryan, after killing his mother, just walks across the school playing field and starts firing at random. Another concerned neighbor, Betty Tolliday, she was 71. And of course, as every elderly person, she's like, yo, something is happening with that. Nothing ever happens in this fucking neighborhood. She thinks it's firecrackers. She thinks like, oh, they're these neighboring kids, you know? She's like, I'm gonna tell them. I'm gonna tell them all. So she gets out of the house. Instead of the firecrackers and the kids, she finds Ryan. Ryan shoots her once. This lady... 70 fucking one. Like the bullet smashes her hip, goes through her pelvis, and exits through her back. She drags herself into the house and survives. Fucking legends. Like, I don't know what these people in hunger for. What do they feed you guys? What do they feed you? Because your name of the city literally has hunger in it. They feed you something special because, like, so many of you survived. This is insane. Luckily, he doesn't actually follow her in the house, which. He's just telling you that this guy is completely disorganized. There's no, like, mission where he follows every single victim and tries to make sure that he finishes the job. He just continues down the road, and he finds his next victim in Francis Butler, who was a 26-year-old accounts clerk, and he was just outside walking his dog in Hungerford Memorial Gardens. Ryan shoots him in the groin this time, shoots him three times in the groin and the leg with a different rifle, with AK-47, and Francis Butler dies on the spot. This is highly inappropriate. This is one of the... Uh, I should have. It's highly inappropriate, but it reminded me of a TikTok where, like, in the maths class, somebody asks, like, what goes, what, what goes before forty-seven, and somebody says AK. I wouldn't find that joke funny. Like, listen, it's trauma and we are all dealing with it with humor. This is who I would be at, like, people's funerals. After shooting Francis, he just continues and passes by a boy, Dean Levisher, without even noticing him. He just has that blank expression on his face. But he kind of shoots a gun at another child who's riding a bike. So, luckily, Dean Kettle manages to miss the bullet. And this is when he abandons one of his missiles, whatever you want to call him, the M1 carbine in the memorial gardens. And remember the police officer from the beginning who observed the first shooting? Well, he realized that that's not like a common gun. And it doesn't seem from all of the scenes of the crimes that people are trying to attend to, ambulances, police, that he is using like a common gun. He seems to have multiple weapons and seems to have special weapons that can't be just dealt with regular police. So in that task force meeting now that they're having, he is advising that armed police need to be used just because his weapon possession doesn't meet the capability of the police station's firearms locker. Also, it didn't help that Hungerford at the time was policed by only two sergeants and 12 constables. And on the morning of 19th of August, the duty cover 
consisted of two constables and one station officer. Because it's a small city, they don't expect something like this to happen. So among the special armed forces not being in town, there were other factors that hampered the police response. The phone exchange wouldn't handle the amount of 911 calls that they were receiving. Only two phone lines were in operation at the local police station because they were undergoing some renovations, so half of it was closed. The firearm squad was doing the training at the time, and they were actually 40 miles or 64 kilometers away. And the police helicopter that was eventually deployed was first in repair, so they had to, like, scramble to repair it fast to actually deploy it to fly over the city. The story of his next victim actually got me. Like, it kind of got me in the chest, because you can, again, vividly picture how his family is directly affected by it. He was a popular cab driver. It's like, you got to love small towns just because they're the cabbies that you would enter. Like, even in fucking when I was back in Novi Sad in Serbia, you would enter, like, a cab, and you'd be like, Oh, same cab driver, like, he just does this fucking route. You just literally, like, know the fucking cab drivers in town. This guy's name was Marcus Bernard, and he was 30. And he was driving to visit his wife and newborn son in the local hospital. That's the part that just gets to me, because this doesn't end well. So, when he slows down to kind of, like, just take a look at what is happening... Ryan shoots him in the head with AK-47, and Marcus dies instantly. He was the 10th fatality of the day. And I'm just picturing, like, his wife and Uberson son not knowing what's happening, then hearing that there is a maniac in the town, and being like, wow. Just what are the chances that some of these people will survive? And also, what are the chances that out of 5,000 plus people, it's going to be exactly these 16 that die? At this point, people who are witnessing this from their windows report that Ryan kind of had, like, a shakening, like, awakening, whatever you want to call it. He kind of seems like he was disgusted by what he has done. And he throws the rifle onto the ground, but then changes it, changes his mind. Something happens in his fucking head. He picks that rifle back up and just continues walking. Now, sort of away from town, so nobody knows where he's going, he's not, like, following a route, which just makes it more difficult for the police to divert people from coming into the danger zone. As he continues walking, he sees that the car is driving towards him, and he shoots both people that he sees in the passenger's and the driver's seat. The driver of the car was Douglas Wainwright. He was hit in the chest and once in the head, and he dies instantly. But the wife in the passenger seat, Kathleen, was just wounded and she survived. Ryan didn't have a victimology, right? So, meaning he didn't account for who his victims were. Unfortunately for him and for the son of the victims that he has just shot, their son was a police officer. And not just any police officer, but their son was the same person that applied him a modified license, allowing him to own more of these firearms, basically approving that he is mentally stable to own even more firearms. And Trevor, the son, was having his day off. He was, like, appreciating his time. Police work is hard, man. Like, they're working long-ass shifts. Like, it was August, like, having the blast, like, in the sun, enjoying his life. When he receives a call from his wife at the time, Jane, she tells him something is going on. Like, I think you need to go into work. Like, there is somebody shooting across the back gardens of the road. So, you know, it's also approaching, like, be careful. He tells his wife to stay safe, and he kind of sees smoke. Like, the pictures of this event are brutal. They're, like, mostly black and white, but you literally see 
as if the whole city is on fire, as if the whole city is just burning, because he's doing everything in the neighborhood, his house is on fire, and because of all of these gunshots and everything, like, all of the alarms are sounding, everything just seems to be a smoke. So Trevor tells his wife to stay safe, and then he goes to the news agents to buy maps, and then goes into the police station. However, the police station is actually locked because of the panic, because of everything that's happening on the sea. They literally lock themselves in to make a plan. So he had to let himself in with a key. And he's thinking at this point, like we have a quote from him. So he thought, quote, I effectively put myself on duty and thought because of my local knowledge, I could show the armed response team the back routes around the town. That's why he got the maps. Ambulances line the main street, end quote. And then he sees that they were members of the public in the station with the police. And when he sees all of these victims, he's obviously like on it, immediately goes to the sergeant and says like, I want to help. However, instead, Sergeant Tryon approaches him and says, I don't know how to tell you this. Your dad's been shot. He's dead. In the next line, I put, enter the revenge. I will have my revenge. So we're backing it up in time a bit here before he reaches the police station because his mom is still on the scene of the crime. We don't know what happens to her. Well, I'm going to tell you what happens to her. She had common sense, a lot of it. She realized, like, her husband is dead. And she kind of covers, gets out of the car on the side and covers behind it because Michael Ryan didn't just walk away. Nope, he reloaded the weapon. And he seemed like he wanted to shoot her again. He was facing her. There was no chance that he would miss. But somehow, because of some reason, something snaps in his head and he just turns away and walks away. Luckily for her, the ambulance will be on the spot now and they take her to the hospital in Swindon. So Trevor is getting this information now at the police station and he heads straight to the hospital and the nurse tells him, like, Kathleen is fine, your mom is fine. And he says, your dad is in the operating theater. Which gave him hope, which gave Trevor hope, like, that his dad was still alive. But once the nurse asks him to describe his dad, he said, like, he had a tattoo, you know, he was six foot one, he had loads of tattoos, had gray hair, and the nurse just looks at him and she just realizes probably that she gave him false hope and she says, I'm really sorry, that's, that's not your dad. That's not the person that's in the operation room. And Trevor said that that was possibly even worse than hearing it for the first time because you kind of, like, have some hope that your dad has actually survived. But that wasn't the case because his dad was actually dead on the scene. By this time... People have recognized him. They knew this guy in the neighborhood. Again, it's a small neighborhood and he is killing right close to the house. So he kind of hears from multiple people, it's it's Michael Ryan. And he can't at first connect the face to the name. And then he realizes why the name sounds so familiar. And that's because he signed his firearms documents. And because he carried out the checks for his firearms license. Just imagine the guilt being like, I approved of this. And this guy literally shot my dad dead and then tried to kill my mom as well. It's just, I don't know. I hope you're doing well, Trevor. I hope you're doing well. I hope there is adequate therapy for that, Trevor. There is adequate therapy to, like, deal with guilt and to surpass it and just be able to move on with your life. Ryan is still on the streets and he shoots at another car, wounding the driver, John Storms, who is 49 and he was a washing machine engineer. What a job. What a job, John. I'm so glad John survived because that's that's the job that we needed. We need them washing machines. We need them laundrettes. He shattered his jaw. Listen to this. This is brutal. He shattered his jaw, burst his tongue, 
and missed his spinal cord by two millimeters. John, again, the luck that you have is, is next level. It's the washing machine engineer luck. That's all I have to say. Bob Barkley, however, the local builder, runs to the scene, literally drags Storms out of the car and manages to like half crouch, half run with him into the safety of his garden. And Storm survived the shooting. By this point, it only took how many? 12 people? 14, 14 at this point? Like, just that are dead. Not even, like, shot around. It's probably, like, 20 at this stage. The press heard of this killing spree, and they arrived into the area. And they obviously, unethically, started taking pictures of the wounded, of everything. Be careful with what you look up when it comes to this case. I'm gonna include, like, the less graphic stuff into the YouTube video if you watch it there. And people later calculated that during the most intense period of his shooting, he killed an average of one person per minute. Let's just imagine this. You might spend longer time on the toilet peeing than this guy spent on killing a person in a minute. While, yeah, analogies, not on point today. And they obviously had to inform the Prime Minister, who was Margaret Thatcher at the time, and she was on holiday in Cornwall but was notified and had to go back to Downing Street, had to go back and give some statement, try to see what the fuck, how do we prevent this for the future. Michael was not paying attention to the police, to the press, to the helicopter. He was just moving on with his kills. Next, he encounters a van driver, because this guy was in his work van, because he was a carpenter. His name was Eric Vardy, and he was en route with Stephen Bale, his passenger, to a builder supplier, which is doing his fucking job. And as he's driving up Terence Hill, his windscreen just shatters with bullets. And he was hit twice under the chin and in the torso. He later would die of shock and hemorrhage from the bullet wound because it's all like in his neck area where we know those critical arteries are. Tell me, tell me why this next person would be me. Because when I read this, I was like, oh my god, this is so... This would so be me. Ryan walked into Priory Road now and he found Sandra Hill, who was 22. She was driving a red car red Renault 5 and she had her window down and the music on blast. She's like background noise is a fucking lifestyle. She did not expect anything, has not heard anything is happening. It's just like, why would you listen to radio when you have the music option? I'm in my red car living my best life. (sighs) Literally, because again, her window is down. This was a clear shot. So Michael took the aim and killed her with a single bullet to the chest. This next one, again, it just kills you inside because these were like elderly people. Well, they were 66 years old. It's just, you know, those people that age together, like, don't fuck with the elderly. Stop fucking with the elderly. Stop breaking my heart over and over again, Ryan. Like, fuck's sake. Next, he went to the residence of 60 Priory Road, and this was the home of Victor and Myrtle Gibbs. Myrtle, you killed the fucking Myrtle. And this is the first time where he blasts the door open. Like, nobody's saying at this point because he doesn't care are they in the garden are they trying to attend to somebody no this is the first time he actually goes into the house like he goes inside the fucking house with a semi-automatic rifle this is not a welcoming fucking visit and Myrtle was wheelchair bound and she was vulnerable and Victor actually realized what the situation is and he tries to throw himself to protect his wife. So, obviously, because Ryan doesn't back out of this situation like a normal human being, Ryan doesn't back out of this situation. He fires at them. Victor dies instantly because the shot just goes through him 
and Myrtle died later in the hospital. And I think in his head, he knows he's approaching his endgame. Not even by the strength for like how much longer he can walk, etc. It's more of probably how many bullets he has left. He probably knows these weapons inside and out and knows how many more people he shot. And that's why he actually went into the house to sort of as a protection or to you know, find cover to have a fort to like maybe think clearly, although he's probably not thinking still. So now that he has this fort for himself, he fires at neighboring houses and he injures a man at number 62 and a woman at number 67 Priory Road. And he knows he's approaching the end, but as he keeps moving down the Priory Road, he just keeps shooting. So he shot Iron Plale, who was a 34-year-old clerk at the Justices of Newbury Magistrates Court, and he brought his wife and the two children to a shopping trip to Hungerford. So as they're driving by, Ryan just shoots at the car and shoots directly at Ian, who dies from a single bullet wound to the neck. The wife and children luckily ducked and they were unhurt because the car was just driving itself in the opposite direction now. And his last victim will also be on Priory Road. It will be George Noon, who was 67, who was just standing in the garden of his son's house at 109 Priory Road. And this is when Ryan shot him in the shoulder and then he shot him in the eye. <sighs> this one hurt. This is always, I'd like, try not to picture shit. And it's just, my mind works. I don't want to say in mysterious ways, because it's not mysterious. It just works in literal ways. That's how my mind works. And my mind just works in literal ways. This is when we get to his endgame. Because now, he kind of just keeps walking, but it seems like he has an aim. Like, he's just not shooting at everybody. And probably everybody is literally hiding and finding cover. Praying for their fucking lives inside the house. Because now they know that he has broken into houses as well. So this is when Michael breaks into his community college. John Ogont Community Technology College. Where he was formerly a student. Because it was summer, luckily, the school was closed. And the police gets a tip from Bert Waitley. This is, by the way, 2 p.m. now. He killed all of these people within an hour and a half. So Bert Waitley watches Ryan as he's walking slowly with his head down and enters his school. So he rings the police and he's like, I, like, I just watched somebody enter the school. I'm pretty sure this is your guy because this just looked like somebody was breaking into school. Like, can you go check it out? So the Chief Inspector Lambert sends the sergeant and the team of eight officers with a tactical firearms unit to investigate this. While this is happening, Michael Ryan barricaded himself in a classroom. And the police outside, they're surrounding the building, and they found some staff and some children who had seen Ryan enter. And they were like, okay, we know the school. Let me, let me give you the map. Let me paint you the picture. So they're literally probably like drawing up the maps of like hiding places, different exits and entrances, where to hide, where to sneak out from. Literally like all of the things that kids pick up from school. They were literally like drawing, trying to help these police officers like get to this guy. Meanwhile, Ryan keeps shooting at the helicopters. There was even a report that he had the grenade and he threw it out of the window. But I have seen that in like one source, so I'm not 100% sure on that one. Meanwhile, the police outside is literally like screaming through the megaphones, trying to get to him and to coax him to get out of the school. However, these attempts fail because he refused to leave before knowing what happened to his mother, saying that her death was a mistake. No, other deaths are fine. The deaths are fine. That, that one death, though. Eventually, they managed to get him on the phone, and during 90 minutes, 
Brightwell, the police officer, and Ryan had a long conversation where Ryan seemed to be kind of lucid, calm, like was coherent, making sense. And Brightwell is literally answering and when he mentions his mom, he kind of is like, okay, okay, no, this is this is what we milk. So he's like, listen, we'll come outside, you know, we'll see how your mom is. I don't know, but I can find out. You know, obviously, like, ambulances are overwhelmed due to your fucking fault. This is why I would not be a great negotiator. I'll be like, it's your fault, Ryan, that the ambulances are crammed, that we can't tell you how your mom is. It's all your fault, okay? To which Ryan said he would not exit the building until he had the news of his mother's condition. Things that Brightwell reported, as Michael said, he said, uh, Hungerford must be a bit of a mess. Bit of an understatement made. Like, are you rubbing it into people's noses by now? I wish I had stayed in bed. We all do, sir. We, we literally all do. Which I think every single citizen of Hungerford, like, who knows that when you Google the place, this is what comes out about it. Yeah, I think every single person wishes he stayed in bed. If only the police car hadn't turned up. If only my car had started. Yeah, if, if only you haven't been born. Like, wh- what What are these excuses? And at 6.45pm he said, It's funny, I killed all those people, but I haven't got the guts to blow my own brains out. He then asked for the time and was silent for a while, and I can presume those police officers were like, what the fuck is he gonna do? This doesn't sound good. He's not going to surrender. And they were right, because at 6.52, they heard a single muffled shot from the classroom, because Michael Ryan has just shot himself. The police now, I can assume they're angry, but they're also probably suspicious and kind of scared, and they have to confirm, did he just shoot into something, or... Did he shoot himself? They tried to determine it by flying the helicopter past the window, but they couldn't really see into the classroom. So one of the tactical firearms unit had to climb onto the roof and then go down one of those gutters to literally have a peek, risking his life if Michael was to be alive, because he would definitely shoot him and just peek into the classroom and be like, oh yeah, he, he, he dead. But then because they don't know what kind of ammunition he has on him, because they have no idea what this guy has approved, and they're maybe suspecting explosives or a booby trap, they have to go in and check if he is actually dead. Is there a booby trap? Is he going to blow the school up? Is that his final mission? But they find the horrific scene where a bullet passed through his skull, shattered his brain, and he was pronounced dead on the scene. After killing 16 people, including his mother, and wounding 15 others. After this event, plenty of people received the Queen's commendation for brave conduct, including the ambulance women. Remember Hazel Haslett and Linda Bright, who were shot by Ryan? There was also... This guy is an actual fucking hero. And he's 21. He was 21 at the time. Lance Corporal Carl Harris. He was a young off-duty soldier and was later veteran of the Falklands War. He was literally like doing, going about his day. He went to pick up a radiator hose when he realized he was in the middle of the massacre. So he went house by house where he figured out that there were victims trying to help them. Because he was in the army at that point and he would go to war, and he knew what to do. He knew how to treat wounds. He knew, you know, how to like press on them to stop the bleeding and this is why so many people actually survived so he obviously got the commendation from the queen as well of course in a typical way the press reported <laughs> that people went to the streets chanting the bastards dead the bastards dead and the children cycled on their bikes yelling good riddance and that people in the pubs toasted to his death <laughs> Because nothing unites people like fucking gossip and like fucking death of 
a mass murderer, nothing. <laughs> it's like, no time to process. Now let's go to a pub and let's cheer with some Guinness. F- fuck processing. Like, now nah, we gotta celebrate the fact that he just, like, offed himself in the end. But the most important thing, yeah, there is more important thing than you going directly to a pub and not processing and not learning anything from an event. That is that this incident was the one that prompted the government to change gun laws, banning semi-automatic and pump-action rifles. This was done through the Firearms Amendment Act in 1988, and this act also restricted the use of shotguns with a capacity of more than three cartridges. You have, like, three shots and that's it. You can't commit a mass murder with that gun. That's how I see guns. So this didn't completely abolish the use of guns, however it has severely reduced what guns people could use in the UK. Let's talk a bit about Michael, shall we? The the mama's boy. The mama's boy of the year 1987. So, as we know, Michael was unemployed. He was unemployed labor and he was also the antique stealer. And his dad was quite old when he was born. His dad was 55. He had no siblings and by all accounts he was let to do whatever he wanted by his mom because they had him late in life. And also his dad died of cancer at the age of 80. So of course because they had him late in life he was the only child. He was overindulged by his mom. He was the mommy's boy even, you know, in his late life, you could say, just by even the reaction that she had to his murder. She was like, oh, sup, Michael? (laughs) Was not super surprised by what she was seeing. From what I've read, she did things like buying him a new car every two years. Yeah, that will do. For For what? Like, for him not doing anything in his life. That's his gift, just like for living. Only kids just have it differently. Listen, every only child out there just has it differently. Like, I ain't jealous. A bit salty, but not jealous. People have said he wasn't really uh, smart or driven. He was not really um, anybody that they noticed in school, they gave a fuck about. Um, They remembered he was quiet, shy, and kept to himself, and was keen on the military. Every fucking person, every single person. Literally, like, the bets are... If you go to military, you're either going to excel and be like one of those people that are like commended for it, or you're gonna take completely left turn and just be like, literally, military was the only place where I thrived, and then you let me out of it, and then I just couldn't deal with the normal life. There was no structure, and I didn't know what to do, so I shot over 30 people. He went to technical college to intend to become a building contractor, but again, he just tried, but realized I have no flair for this job, so he dropped out to college. So he would have off jobs here and there. At some point, he also worked as a caretaker at a girl's school. Mm -mm, No, we don't need perverts like this, sorry. While his mother was literally fulfilling every single wish that he had. Cars? Got it. Check. Petrol? Of course, of course, petrol gotta, gotta go with the cars. Insurance? Of course, I mean, car insurance, otherwise you get in trouble, like and you have anger management issues first gun oh God. my son gotta be protected gotta protect himself an air rifle why not like add more guns to it i'm not saying that that's particularly the problem it's a problem once a child is withdrawn because his mom could have noticed all of these red flags once he's withdrawn and then wants guns and doesn't have any friends and then wants more guns and doesn't you know get any work or have any other hobbies yeah all of those 
red flags. And from what I've seen in different articles, it seems like his mom was feeding his delusions that he had like a normal life to the point that he actually even had a made-up girlfriend. His mom was kind enough, was great enough and delusional enough to even try to invite other people and like tell them about this upcoming wedding that did not exist because the girlfriend did not exist in the first place. Do you know how insane your parents need to be to like actually buy into your delusion? Like hold people accountable for fuck's sake. Like honestly that's one thing that I'm thankful for my parents for like that they always kind of held me accountable and told me like no that that was not great. No, that that was that was actually shy. Instead of just letting me believe that I'm great at everything that I do, and then what? Like once you go into the real world, you're like, no, 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 my mama told me I'm great, but you are not, so you can't cope with. You can't deal because your expectations of yourself are so fucking great. Of course, his love for guns came from the early childhood, and even at the age of thirteen, his mom got him a rifle. Thirteen, no. No, get him to get mentally stable. 28, maybe maybe not even then. Judging by my own stability, maybe not even then. He was said to be enjoying pointing that weapon at cows, birds, even children. <laughs> Hilarious. He, he, people his own age, animals his own age. So when he grew up, he became a skilled shooter and a member of two gun clubs. And remember how he wounded that guy that installed a glass cabinet in his bedroom? Yeah, he had a glass cabinet where he was proudly displaying all of his guns because he started becoming a collector eventually. So to any of the friends that were left and to his mommy, he would brag about all these things that he hasn't done. He just started lying and then it just became more and more increasing about his achievements and how he's actually living a normal life. He told people he served in the second parachute regiment of the British Armed Forces that he was getting married, that he owned a gun shop. None of it, none of it true, none of it existed. And then, as an epitome of healthy parenting, when people wouldn't believe him, he would go to his mom, he would run to the mom, because he's now what? Because he's in his 20s now. He can't cope with this disbelief. Why are people not believing in his stories? So he runs to mom, and he brings mom, and the mom confirms the story to everybody. The mom never disagreed with him in public. That's one way to parent a child, I guess. I don't know much about his mom, but I just, I have no respect. Because she continued doing this throughout his life. It's like some common sense. So even before his father's death, which happened when he was 25 and his dad died of cancer, Ryan was subscribed to all these different magazines on survival skills and guns. He enjoyed violent films like Rambo, First Blood, that came out in 1982. But his father's death affected him a lot, so that was kind of one of the final triggers. This is when he became withdrawn and would go off to shoot by himself or just work on cars. And this is when he lost a caretaker job. One of the other triggers is that a few months before the massacre, he joined the Tunnel Rifle and Pistol Club in Wiltshire. And the manager reported that he was spending increasingly great amount of time there. He was a very good shot and he was improving the accuracy over long distances. I mean, I can't expect people in shooting clubs to call the police and be like, he is doing something increasingly worrying because that's what everybody is doing at the shooting clubs. Yeah, I still blame it on the mom. Cool. We established that? Cool. And in the months leading to the shooting, he is going to just increase his gun collection. So in 86, he applied for the certificate to cover the third pistol, and he wanted to buy two more, which was approved in April 1987. On 14th of July, he also applied for another variation to cover two extra semi-automatic rifles, 
which was approved on 30th of July. So at the time of the massacre, this meant that he had seven weapons, ranging from semi-automatic shotguns and different rifles, which were all approved because they didn't find he had any mental illness, they didn't find anything strange with the fact that he was unemployed, had no friends, had no girlfriend, lived with his mom. No, none of that raised any red flags. So what could have possibly motivated Michael Ryan to get up that morning, not be able to start his car, and then go proceed to shoot people? I love this woman because she's a criminologist and she's a badass. She's Dr. Liz Yardley. I think she teaches at University of Birmingham. We mentioned her with the Twilight Killers and said that she believed he was attempting to wrest some sort of control from society. He was a single man, unemployed, living with his mother, with no evidence of romantic sexual relationship in his life. So what he did was to ultimately take back the control. And she said in particular that he knew that this day would end in his own death. So in effect, he was also controlling how he died and the way he died. Liz also said something I could only find in this one article because there's not much known about his mom and dad and their relationship. But she said he would have learned how to treat women from how his dad treated his mom. Of course, but the kicker is that his dad was a bully. And that the mom, again, because this is, I think, who what her whole personality was, was hiding the fact that the dad was abusive. So she would kind of come in with bruises here and there and would just blame it on, oh, I fell. And people just bought into that because, again, domestic violence and how it was looked at 20... No, Maya, uh, 80s weren't 20 years ago. <laughs> they were 40 plus years ago. I'm gonna lose my shit. Forever stuck in 2000s. I'm forever stuck in 2000s. Okay, cool. That you dealt with that painful fact. Liz Yardley said Ryan's mother consistently pandered to her husband and son, so Michael saw her as someone who was there to do things for him and essentially serve him, which would bring the sense of entitlement to a whole different level. Another professor that looked at this case said that his upbringing made him into a narcissist who could not cope with being disobeyed, disagreed with, or challenged in any way and that his overindulgent mother contributed to him never taking responsibility for his actions, which is a personality trait that is common to many spree killers, which is why some of them end up in suicide. And his medical reports show that he had no history of mental illness. In fact, the doctor actually countersigned his gun applications, which is both, I think, like... a I don't want to say a blessing. In what sense was it a blessing? No, it was a curse in every sense because he just got more guns and he never got like himself sorted out. Nobody saw that anything was wrong with him. Nobody saw the red flags. Why did you want to say it was a blessing or a curse? Question it. Question yourself at all times. You're witnessing me questioning myself right now. I think why I wanted to say it is at least they didn't blame it on insanity, right? They didn't put like the insanity defense on this guy because this was clearly not it. And once it was portrayed afterwards, it wasn't looked at as, oh no, he was just like an insane maniac. No, they looked into like everything and realized, no, we should have spotted all of these flags along the way. Yeah, but that still doesn't make it a blessing. Cool. Now, glad that we had this talk. Some people would disagree, so the medical director of Broadmoor Hospital, John Hamilton and Jim Higgins, 
They would actually say that after analyzing everything Michael has done through his life that they thought he was schizophrenic and psychotic. They said that he mostly would be suffering from acute schizophrenia and he might not have a reason for doing what he did, but it was bizarre and peculiar to him, so he did it because it was weird. So I just wanted to point that out as like other people might have thought that motives actually had to do with his mental health as well. The FBI reports that analyzed 63 active shooters between 2000 and 2013 because it is a new wave of crime. They have actually disagreed and said that looking at this as a mental health diagnosis and claiming that people who commit this are mentally ill is not a specific predictor of violence of any type, let alone targeting violence. And that these declarations and this representation in the media that all active shooters must be mentally ill is misleading and unhelpful. This professor, Craig Jackson, who is a psychologist that specializes in spree killers. What a specialty, sir. He said he also thinks there was a sexual motive behind it. He said he believes these trips to the gun rage and the fact that they were increasing, that he was spending all of the time there, would kind of give him this sexual thrill and would give him the sense of accomplishment because he was following and watching people unseen and because he was a creep and most probably 100% uh, a virgin. Nothing, nothing against the virgins, okay? Just don't replace like the shooting of a gun with banking your dick off like those two things should be a separate entities and you can go to a gun range and shoot a gun and like not end up being him but you also need to to shoot your own gun <laughs> what <laughs> what at your own gun range in a sock at least if you're not getting any shoot it off in a sock all the sperm is in a shower great showers your mommy is not there Cool. Just, just do it. Just get some sexual tension off. You can't be this turned on by guns. And this professor said he doesn't think that Ryan intended to commit the killing spree on that day. He believes he might have been fantasizing on it on a lower level. But the events of the day, the fact that he just lost complete control over his car now and his cars were his precious possessions, as you know, like now mommy would need to buy him another car. And his personality type were what led to it. In a nutshell, what he's saying is that there was no manifesto. Usually people like this kind of leave a manifesto, leave a message behind, a message to the world about how they're bettering it by killing this amount of people. But in Ryan's case, there was none of that. Dr. Gregory Moffat, a childhood aggression specialist, said that victims of bullying and generally those who are small, weak, lack confidence, are just loners, their inability to defend themselves against the bullies means that they convert this shame, guilt, anger, hate, and need to revenge, and it just builds and builds inside of them until this powerful mix of emotions leads them to violence. And due to this being such a prevalent crime, people are profiling it and trying to see if it's preventable, if they can spot the red flags. So usually the profile of a mass shooter is that they would have a history of substance abuse, history of having been abused or bullied, witnessing violence between parents, preoccupation with weapons or just death and poor anger management skills and social isolation. And unfortunately today, this is a prevalent method for people to display these fantasies of revenge for some type of justice that they deem perceived. And as we know, one usually inspires the other because would-be mass killers see themselves as finally belonging, as finally having friends, having this brotherhood of like-minded men. 
usually men. And to people that commit these crimes, like previous people that have done this, are perceived as their idols, their pioneers, somebody they should aspire to and commit something that would have the same impact in their country, in their neighborhood, that would possibly relieve them of the feelings they're feeling inside. They finally would be recognized by the like-minded people that they've they're going to belong to now, even though these people are criminals and literally doing the worst. I don't think there's mental illness behind this one. I personally think these are calculated, even though he seemed to have snapped out of it. The feeling of revenge and taking back control is a prevalent thing for me when it comes to Michael Ryan in particular. I'll see what I think once I cover two more massacres this month, but that is the story of the Hungerford Massacre. You can always come and hang out on the socials, that Pod, on all fronts, or join me on Patreon. Watch this video on YouTube and drop the comments, see what other people are thinking on the motives behind the Hungerford Massacre. But now, look at the time, look at my imaginary watch. You are going to your next Zoom call. This week, you could do the simple thing of telling people what the judge, jury, and executioner means, and then asking them can they name a case of somebody who has been the judge, jury, and executioner, and then offloading this story onto them or just telling them to listen to my podcast. Or you could ask your friends, would they have a problem? You know, like when they listen to those lifestyle podcasts, like the comedy ones where they just chat about like their life and shit. And usually the prevalent pattern on those podcasts is people discussing like, oh, when did you lose your virginity? When did you lose your weak card? You know, were you a hoe or not? And some people have problem answering those types of questions and seeing like, you know, imagine a hypothetical situation. You are on this kind of podcast. Would you have a problem answering that type of question? And if so, why? Are you just shy or are you into guns? In the UK, luckily, the chances of something like this happening again is slim because people don't own guns legally. So they would either have to have an illegal gun or go on a stabbing spree or something like that, not giving anybody any ideas, okay? Fucking quote me like Maya inspired me. But in the US, just check up on your co-workers every now and then. In a completely hypothetical, different situation, don't even start up the question. You just like start up chatting about random things that might be considered as flags. Like, hey, when did you lose your virginity? Hey, are you suddenly being socially isolated? Why is that? Are you getting therapy? Do you still live with your mom? Like, do you have anger management issues? You know, but like in a subtle way, trying to pinpoint these red flags. And then if you see a couple, report them and save the world, truly. <laughs> you might save a world, you might save a couple of people's lives, which leads me to my outro, which is that by doing that, you would do what? Keep making this world a better place. One motive at a time. <laughs> bye, fuckers. Good.